So I think the question really we'd start with is, do we want to hear each other? Where are the places that we want to hear each other? Um, and then to the extent that we think we can identify places where we want to hear each other, then we can start saying, okay, now that we've identified a place we want to hear each other, how can we talk? And how can we talk about these things? Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Michael McCoy. If you missed the first part, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to that first as there's a lot of good stuff there. But without further ado, let's pick up where we left off. So I think if we're looking at our two-party system, we have kind of two sides, and we're going to get to those two sides in a, uh, in, in, in a little while when we talk about like, so one side, if you're talking about abortion uh, and how we need to combat abortion, you know what side you're going to be talking about. You're talking typically about the the right. And if you are talking about social justice, uh, you are talking about, uh, you're talking about a few different things, but that includes race. So before we get to that, like more versus conversation in full, uh, I want to talk about like racism and its use in politics. So I appreciate, you know, my perspective is coming from a, a bunch of different places and yours is as well. Um, one of those identity markers is as a black man. Um, how have you, uh, how do you see politics? Like, um, maybe I ask it this way. It, it, I feel like race is just being used as a vehicle very much, which is weakening the overall message of racism. So, uh, and, and by that, I mean, we, we, we talk about it. This is racist. That is racist. And I believe very firmly in systemic racism that it believe in meaning that it exists um, and that it, it should and needs to be combated. And part of the reason why we can't combat it is because we're not talking about it or everybody's not talking about it. But it, it also gets chalked up as such just like a liberal mark, you know, like, well, the libs are always talking about racism and everything is racist to the point where it seems like we're not really having a discussion. One side is yelling abortion and the other side is yelling racism. Um, and so uh, how do we navigate that better, uh, especially in this aforementioned polarization period? I mean, I think my first question is, do we want to navigate it better? And I, and I think that's actually a, a really important thing for us to address. I mean, the reason why we shout our comfort words almost, right, our, our righteous words, is because we actually don't want to hear what the other side is, want, is saying. And, and literally in that sense, like, we don't want to. And I think this is a tough one to say, but I think it's one that we have to say. Do we want to meet in the middle? Do we want to meet somewhere beyond our poles? Or do we want our pole to be so strong that we can crush the other pole? And, and I think that reality needs to be addressed because it's not that, again, sometimes like, oh, we're not hearing each other, right? It's like, I'm talking about issues of life and you don't, you, it's like, if I can just recalibrate my pro-life message, you'll hear me. Um, maybe it might even go softer on your ears, but you may not ultimately hear me because you don't want to. Um, if I can think of a better way of explaining systemic racism to you, will you hear me again? You might, it might sound better in your ears when I say it, but I don't know that you're going to hear me. And especially in a, and you know, mm -hmm. I think this is something that you've, uh, that you guys have talked about in a previous podcast. It's like, um, you don't like BLM and Antifa screaming in the streets and, you know, burning down buildings and being the anarchist, you know, rioters, anti-American anarchist rioters that they are. Okay. 
But we also know you're not going to listen if someone silently kneels during the Pledge of Allegiance. So it's not really, it's not really the message. It's not really the delivery system. It's the message. Um, I can tell you as someone who is, you know, uh, strongly pro-life, I um, have a lot of friends who are pro-choice and they respect my pro-life views. And I can talk about my pro-life views in ways that they find acceptable and understandable. It doesn't make them not pro-choice. So, so I think that, um, so I think the question really we'd start with is, do we want to hear each other? Where are the places that we want to hear each other? Um, and then to the extent that we think we can identify places where we want to hear each other, then we can start saying, okay, now that we've identified a place we want to hear each other, how can we talk and how can we talk about these things? Or, you know, so if we, cause again, I, I, I stand here as someone who both believes in the importance of the existence of systemic racism and the need to dismantle it. I'm also a person who believes in the sanctity of life in utero. And in fact, my belief in these two things operate together because I think I believe of the sanctity of life in utero and I see how black lives are devalued in utero because that, and that devaluing of black lives in utero, it continues ex utero. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to have two people stand next to each other and one person is riled up about the devaluation of life ex utero. One person's de- uh, upset about the life, devaluation of life in utero and they refuse to hear each other. And you're standing there and you're just like, guys, if you, if you actually slightly change your words, you'd be hearing each other. You'd be on the same page. And after you say that about 10 times, you realize, oh, you don't want to be on the same page. Right. You right. don't want to be on the mm-hmm. same page. And I don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the yeah. importance of being a Christian and know that you're set apart, right? And it becomes the fact that, well, I'm going to, with my Christian voice, I'm going to still say, let's value life in utero and ex utero. Um, yeah. Let's, yeah, I mean, there's so much more that can be said about the sort of, you know, politics of, of, of life development and how we think about life development. But I'm going to be a voice that say, let's value life in utero and ex utero. And I hope by living that ethic, that example will, you know, will be salt in the earth, will be light in the world. And as I live that out, not only just by believing it, but by embodying it in the different things I do with my life. And again, that fruit, and that goes back to what I was saying about the morals of God will have material effects, right? That you know, in scripture, we talk about that as the fruit of the spirit. As I bear fruit by living out those ethics, people come along and they'll see my fruit and they'll see my garden. And I'm like, man, that fruit looks great. How'd you produce that fruit? Well, you know, this, 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 like, well, you know, I have to admit that fruit does look pretty good. All right, let's try out some of these ethics, beliefs. You know, this is another thing I say to students as, you know, sometimes as evangelical Christians, we think it's First, preach the, the get people to believe the theology and then the ethics. But there's also a biblical model that says live the ethics and then people will suddenly believe the theology, right? So when we're living these righteous ethics and we're producing these awesome fruit and we have this great garden and we're showing like, wow, what a, what does an ethic look like? What does a value system look like that values life at every stage? Then, and you bear fruit in that, then people might come along and say that fruit looks go, so good. Maybe I'll rethink the way. 
maybe I do want to get on that page because that fruit looks so good. Well, I mean, that's that's First Peter 2 right there, mm-hmm. or uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking about being um, a light that shines brightly. These, these are very, <laughs> very uh, gospel-centered uh, principles, but I, I don't know that we do a good job of thinking about what it means to follow Jesus transparently in all of life, including our political engagement. And so it's really encouraging to hear you kind of articulate that. I, I, we, we need more of, of that. And I'm, I'm glad that you're at the forefront of shaping uh, a lot of students' minds on this. I, I do have one really important question. I want to make sure that we get in. Um, what is the best political TV show and why is it West Wing? I have been given this question so many times in that exact form, in that exact form. Like what's the best show and why is it West Wing? I mean, it probably is. I don't think that there's, I, I can't think of a show that you can is more shaped. That. He said it probably is. That's good. We're good. Uh, more shaped political minds. Um, but I, you know, Bob, I, I want you to, go, I want you to go and, um, Again, I hate to say you have to read the comic before you watch this series, but I love it. If you if you just read the comic Watchmen and then watch the series, it will blow your mind. Um, I mean, how, how I'm curious? How big a fan of the West Wing are you? I mean, I've watched all of it, and it's uh, I I really like Jeb Bartlett a lot, so. I mean, I, I'm not like a complete nerd where I know all the Easter eggs and everything, but I sure do like it. No, I was, I mean, I think I basically came politically of age in the era of West Wing. And it's, it's almost just like going back and watching the West Wing now is just sort of like, you almost wish you could just crawl, like crawl in and just like, can this please, can this please be the world we live in? Um, I know. I, you know, one of the, the reason I asked is there, there's two West Wing clips that I show in my class. I mean, these days it's harder because it's over Zoom and trying to show clips. No, I still show some clips in class. But uh, the one where, um, that's why I was asking, like, how deep in the weeds are you? Um, there's a clip where um, it's Block of Cheese Day and the, the cartographers for equality come. Yes. And I and they are like saying like what if we change the maps? And I tell you, when that episode came out, I was a teenager, and it just blew my mind. It was like, <laughs> wait, that what? And they're like, well, what if we turn the map upside down? I'm like, CJ says like you can't do that. She goes, why not? He goes, why not? He goes, because you're freaking me out. It was just like, and ever since then, if I see a map and it's not like the West Wing, like Peter, I'm like, no, that's the wrong map. That's the wrong map. Please tell me. And then there's just another walk around like flipping maps upside down. If you go, I mean, if you go on Wheaton, uh, Wheaton's uh, campus, if you go to the uh, hunger office, human needs and global resources, you go in their office, they have the upside down map. Nice. They have the upside down map. It's cartography correct. It's, you know. And then there's another episode where they're like talking about different policies. It's like, okay, let's, um, instead of having, being heavy carbon dependent, what if we try, you know, wind? What if we try nuclear? What if we try this? And it basically show like, these are all as also solutions that are going to be very costly and have their own drawbacks. And it's a great lesson in just sort of learning one about different environmental technologies. And two, it's a good lesson just in humility, right? Like right. you can beat up on anything, but what's your solution? And so, yeah, yeah. No, West Wing. It's, it's definitely, I mean, you can't go wrong. Uh, are you guys done? <laughs> that's, that's, uh... <laughs> 
Uh, I've been I've been told, including by a student, that I needed to I needed to watch You've the West Wing. You've never seen so it. This Steve, is just reinforcing where have that. you been? Just never skip the first season. It's not worth your time. And just jump jump to season two, and it's just like like I so because Steve knows how much I love movies. We we got. I just love to give students like I just love to give students lessons on like how great the '90s were, (laughs) and so I'll just show clip. I'm like the '90s were the best decade because that's when America thought it could do everything, and I said there's nothing demonstrates this better than the scene in the '90s over like the '50s. Um, well, the nineties had better, well, the nineties had better movies, right? So (laughs) the scene in Independence Day, when, um, they're just like, when everyone's sitting around and it's like, and the, it's like the Americans doing Morse code and they're like, oh, the Americans have figured out it's bloody time. What do we do? Like the whole world's just waiting on America (laughs) to solve the problem. (laughs) And I always say to students, I'm like. America, we were riding so high that the only thing we could think of that could beat us had to be outside the world. So it had to be like aliens showing up. You had the, you had had to be a comet. So you had Armageddon and Deep Impact. Like you just like because we could not think of anything beating us that could be on Earth. And then 9-11 ruined all our movies. And then you know, but then we get dark. Then we get the Dark Knight movies. So it's okay. You know, <laughs> oh, we shoot, man, I, th- yeah. I think, wow, you guys knew I wanted to touch on American exceptionalism. I didn't know we were going to entitle it the 90s, <laughs> but uh, that's that's fascinating. It really is fascinating. I mean, no, but seriously, like even what uh, Bob's talking about with um, uh, with West Wing. I mean, West Wing is one of the reasons people like West Wing is West Wing is the is the um, political show of American exceptionalism. Right. Not only not only political exceptionalism, moral exceptionalism. Right. Like Jed Bartlett, just like the perfect president even his imperfections are perfect okay we were talking about uh, we ended up talking about like left and right in areas of abortion versus social justice uh when we were kind of focusing on race a little bit more i want to just bounce back there for a moment and just speak a little bit more and hear you know both of your thoughts a little bit more on that in my opinion what i'm just labeling as a false dichotomy it does not have to exist like that i think that I am, if you listen to me on this podcast, but if you, you know, have conversations with me, I will, generally speaking, from a political standpoint, be harder on the right than I am on the left. And my general understanding or the reason I can think of that I tend to do that is because one is more associated with Christian values, you know, in the moral majority. And and I think that uh, the failure to examine that is what makes it so complex when just a little while ago, Michael, you were mentioning how, uh, uh, I think you mentioned it was Dr. Um, one of the Dr. Hills were sharing about, we're sharing about like, what what if we were uh, basically more demanding as Christians and we, we did, we let, we made people earn our vote and said, did you have to hold up for Christian values essentially? Well, I think that for most, for a lot of Christians, especially in like mainstream evangelicalism, have already made their decision on what those Christian values are. And they don't often include uh, pieces about dismantling systemic racism or even understanding it um, or in, in, in a plethora of areas that would fit broadly under social justice. It is, it is, it is, a, it is sort of abortion in that way. So I have plenty of thoughts for the left too. And we might even get to some of those, but I think there is a reason this is as a Christian, this is a, this is a podcast with Christians on it. Um, and, and I think that that's why I tend to be a little bit harder on there. So I want to talk a little bit more about that false dichotomy and how I'm just increasingly 
more and more against it. So before I hear your thoughts, I do want to share a quote that really started this for me, because I grew up in a home that was definitely uh, pro-life and we were extremely, but pro-life was like the political, was, um, was driving political decisions uh, a lot more. Racism was, I, I don't think we, I might've mentioned this in a previous episode. I don't think we even bothered we didn't expect much of politicians from a from a racial standpoint. So we knew that injustice existed. We were uh, brought up being very aware of what our own history and the legacy of uh, being black in America meant. So that partition was there. But probably when I was in college, I heard this quote or I read this quote from um, uh, she was a nun. She's a nun. Her name is Joan Chittister. And uh, in an interview in 2004, but I found out about it sometime in college years later. She had this quote in talking about pro-life. She says this, I do not believe that just because you are opposed to abortion, that that makes you pro-life. In fact, I think in many cases, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, a child educated, a child housed. And why would I think that you don't? Because you don't want any tax money to go there. That's not pro-life, that's pro-birth. We need a much broader conversation on what the morality of pro-life is, um, And end quote. And so I remember that hitting me when I was you know, much younger with these concepts and just being like, that's what I feel like is going on. This seems like a very convenient uh, people group to protect because they don't ask anything of us. We're just, we're just tasked with protecting them, do the Christian thing, but then our integrity is called into question because the moment that they've left a woman's womb, we're not really putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak. So tell me a little bit about that, because I'm, uh, I felt that a lot uh, and, and think that Christians need to stop giving in so much to that dichotomy. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And, 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 and I get, like I said, I, this idea that we um, have a belief system that values life differently in utero than ex utero um, you can, if you want, make up logics for why you value one over the other. But for me, they just, they fall flat. And, um, and so then it gets to a place of, you know, it gets, it gets to a difficult place that is uncomfortable and might even, and, and, and definitely risk being uncharitable where you just start questioning, like, if once a child is born, your care for it seems to drop off, right? Or, and, you know, Steve, you might remember some years back, uh, we won't specify how many years back, there was a speaker, we won't specify the name of the speaker, who came to campus and was just telling us, of course, systemic racism doesn't exist, systemic racism doesn't exist. Um, and then also said that, you know, the most dangerous place for a Black person to be was inside his mother's womb. And so it's sort of like, so you know that racism exists in utero, but it doesn't exist anywhere else, right? That, that's just, that's ridiculous. Like that, that's, that's a nonsensical statement you just made. So suddenly there's, there's just like in utero racism, but baby's born, nope, no more racism. We should also affirm though, because you're right, and, I, and, I, and I'm probably there with you, Steve, actually, I'm, I'm almost certain I am, that I have a tendency, especially in these recent years, to be harder on the right than on the left. Now, I was raised in a much more liberal home, so there was a time in my life where I was much harder on the left than the right. Um, 
but I don't want to lose sight of, I don't want to be so much hard on the right that I lose sight of issues with the left that I have, because the fact of the matter is we do see higher abortion rates among African-Americans. We do see globally, globally, um, there is a, you know, genocide against women happening in utero globally because of just, you know, systemic hatred of women. And in fact, yeah, I, I fear often that we mask our pro-life politics. We, our pro-life politics is a mask for that continuing derogation of women, right? There's so many, there's, our sin is so intertangled here, right? Yeah. But we can't, it's like, we can't call ourselves for women's rights and then support a system that allows for the ending of female life in utero. Yeah. And so we've, we've, we've created these divisions that just don't, I, I mean, I, I swear they don't make sense. And so yeah. what I say is that I do, again, being raised in a very pro-life home, I do understand what, or at least I think I understand, because someone might push back and say, no, you don't understand, which, you know, that's fair. Maybe I don't. But I, I understand a lot of the arguments that people who are pro-choice make in terms of it is often women in poverty who are putting these, who are who are likely to make decision for abortion. It is women who are um, either abandoned by the man who made them pregnant and they're put in this position. Um, there are easier opportunities for you know um, professional advancement if you don't have that third or fourth child, and those are realities. And I think for any of us who would call ourselves pro-life. We shouldn't pretend that those aren't realities. What we want to affirm is I recognize those realities and now I want to work in community with a God-given creativity to think of a better solution than saying the ending of a life of the person in utero is the solution. I completely agree with you on the problem. I disagree with you on the solution and I don't want to confuse the two. And I don't want to be so opposed to your solution that I ignore your problem, right? And then, and, and again, and for that person who values a life in utero, who is going to the March for Life, I don't want to immediately just say, well, I, you know, you voted in a way I didn't vote, so therefore you're being disingenuous. I don't want to say that because I, I, I know enough of those people to know their convictions are actually very genuine and actually quite beautiful. But I do want to ask the question, why can you only affirm that black lives matter if the life is in utero? Why is that the only time you can affirm it? Why is it when I say black lives matter, you will say, well, what about abortion? It's like, because you've put me in a position where I don't, I don't believe you because I just, you know, again, coming back to scripture, you know, first John, how can you say you love your brother who you don't see when you don't love, when you don't love your brother well, you do see how can you say you love a black life in utero when you don't love a black life ex utero so chicken and egg here do you think that political affiliation um or political alignment um is influencing or or keeping us from this sort of integrative both and pursuit where we're saying okay ethic of jesus want to follow i have to care for both but do you think we're being disadvantaged or but, but by prioritizing one or the other because of our political affiliation, or do you think those are already um, convictions that people have, policy convictions or just, you know, cultural or just sinful preferences, um, and then they find cover in their political party? I mean, I, and I think 
I always hate the cop out answer of both. Um, I, I actually I think it varies based on the person. But I what I would say is these reinforce each other. But I think it varies on the person because I think you see you see two things, right? Like because you can imagine a world where, or actually I think we've seen a world where, um, I grew up in a political environment that affirmed these things, disaffirmed these things, and I trusted the people who affirmed and disaffirmed these things because I see these people as, you know, authorities in my life, living a life of integrity, blah, 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 right? And so, and it happened to be the place I'm being raised in is a already affiliated with one camp or the other and is a polarization. So it's sort of like, so, so it's, it's so hard to disentangle those two because they've both now become so systemically integrated with each yeah. other. Yeah. Now, I think the point of um, point of crisis, the point of you know the you know the day of choosing, I guess we could say, is when you become confronted with something contrary. How do you respond, right? And I think that becomes the day of choosing, mm-hmm. right? When it's sort of like to your point, Steve, like you read this statement by this nun, and it was like whoa, and it kind of just like and it allowed you to reevaluate. Now there might have been other primers before that that were already starting to kind of like give some chinks in the armor i mean there's you know this i I think about um the there's an argument about why paradigms change and it's and usually it's because not because you find yours faulty but you find another one better but you usually find something better because you started to find fault in the one you've already believed in it's sort of like the one you believed in and it focused on scientific paradigms but i think this applies to all different belief system of you know, a few times you're sort of like, yeah, I have questions about this. I had a question about that. I had a question about this. But you never knew who to ask that question to or what the answer was. And what you actually hope is the paradigm belief system that you believe in will have the answers, right? But it keeps coming up with faulty answers. And then somebody else comes along and gives gives an answer to that question that the other one couldn't answer. And you're suddenly like, whoa, that's a big question I had. That You give me an answer. Now I want to pursue more of what you have to say, right? And And then I might switch over. Right. And so I think that you can have someone who and again, and, and that's and that's my own story about how I became um, uh, much more committed to my faith. I mean, I, I came from a home where certainly uh, the truth of God was 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 affirmed, but not in the um, not necessarily from a, a very strictly biblical way, though, I would believe today. And it was just kind of because it started with a hmm, I wonder about this. I wonder about this. I wonder about this. And then talking to people who, um, you know, were much more into the truth of the Bible, sort of just saying like, well, these answer these questions. Like, oh, okay, well, what about these other things? And it's like more answers, more answers. And I think, and, and so that helped me with better understanding, but it started with me having some questions. And if you never get to that place of questioning or wondering about like inconsistencies, I don't know if you could have the ability uh, to hear, unless something like big happens. And again, this example I started with where, again, shooting at Charleston Amy Church, seeing the people forgive and seeing the effects. And this was just so radical. This was so radical that it just, it literally blew my mind and made me just think like, is there something to Christian ethics that isn't just for my own personal life or isn't just for my church community, but might have effects on politics too. And not say, and what I don't mean by that is like, Oh, what are the political beliefs of Christians such as your positions on 
abortion, your positions on, you know, human trafficking, but actually like ethics of humility, forgiveness, loving the enemy, charity, like, like, do these values belong in politics? And as I started to pursue that as a thought process, the answer just kept coming up. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Or yes, but let me think about that more because that was a good question that person just posed to me. Right? Yeah, I, I love that. And that is, that is uh, that really encapsulates what the, the, the impetus for this podcast is, you know, is, is looking at, you've had as individuals, as groups, uh, and I'm sure even as political parties, we've, we've had an emphasis, you know, on something or some things. And you've been like, yes, that is where we stand on it. That is where we stand on it. But your silence on another topic or your just clear discrepancy on, on, on how you live that out in another area of life, or you're holding to something that is seen as generally noble, but you lacking just like the basic, <laughs> seemingly basic, like concepts of human uh, decency uh, in discourse and in behavior uh, have cost the church, you know, I believe have cost the church a lot to the point where like, and this isn't just as a, like a bashing the church session. This is just, I think the reality is for those who have either been in the church and are out or who have always been critical of the church, wherever, there's this idea that uh, you already know what the church has to say on it. Come voting time, that's the only time that I talk about the church. And the church is sort of synonymous with evangelicalism, I mean, with, e- with the evangelical mm-hmm. vote, you know. Um, and so they're going to do their thing. And uh, and we've got to do more, you know. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm hearing a lot of this, like, both and, and even though it can feel like a cop-out, that is, like, the mm-hmm. that's part of the tension that I think is part of the mm-hmm. Christian life, right? Um, to have to speak to things. And that's why, like, I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of the and campaign. And uh, because finding finding solutions is at is 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 core um, to so many important pieces, uh, but trying not to forsake anything in the process. And I think this goes back to what uh, about what you said about having that thick ethic, right? That thick ethic is has that foundation, right? It has the foundation more than anything else. It has the foundation of love. And so when you get these false dichotomies of abortion versus social justice, you know, we have a foundation that says, I want to love somebody as long as God has decided they're in the world, right? And and if if God says conception, I want to love them. And if God says birth, I want to love them. And if God says old age, I want to love them. And if God says, um, you know, mental, um, uh, some type of, you know, mental struggle, I want to love them. And if, you know, as long as God says you are here, I want to love you. And if the politics of my society is saying no, why am I listening to the politics of my society? That doesn't even make any sense. So if we have that foundation built on gospel ethics, then we can create a new politics. And that new politics can include our culture or cannot include our culture. But it's 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 founded on the rock. A passage that comes to mind is Jeremiah 29 and 7, when you see the kingdom of Judah uh, in exile um, and being oppressed uh, by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar and the bunch. And that popular verse 7 of having to seek the welfare of the city, um, seek the peace of the city, and how the welfare of the city of the oppressors are is irrevocably tied up with their own welfare. Um, 
and yeah, I, I find that uh, I, I find that really crucial to to think about when we talk about Christians engaging on some level, because there can be in the kind of response to to polarization can kind of be apathy and just be like, well, then I'm just not going to be involved. And of course, there's different schools of what involvement looks like on a political stage. Um, but I think there's something to be said for as long as we're in this fallen world, as long as we're engaging in this space, um, uh, as long as we're here, even even if it's temporal, you know, um, we still have we still have a call to be involved. The problem isn't our actions. The problem is our uh, the problem can be the problem can be our motivation and heart in those actions. I, I, I know a lot of work that Christians are doing that I think is great. Again, I, I know, I know people who are involved in the March for life and I think that's wonderful. I know people who are involved in political campaigns and I think that's wonderful. Um, I know people who choose to abstain from, um, what we might call political engagement. Um, and I think that that's, uh, and I think that's fine if, they, if they've come to that decision from a place of wisdom. But that's the thing, right? Our, what are we motivated by, right? I think that's why I just, I just keep coming back to this foundation point, right? What are we motivated by? And, and to the way you even frame the question, Steve, right? Is, it a, is, is our motivation manipulation? Is our motivation power hungriness or power hunger? Hungriness? Is it power hunger? Is it fear-based? Um, or is it about... Love is it about seeking the welfare of the city? I mean, really, like I, I, I'm so glad, Steve, you went with uh, 2097 and not 2911. And I think 2911 is fine, but it's, it needs to be put in context, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many times people yeah. just pull out 2911. I seek your good, and I seek your your prosperity, and I seek this, I seek that. Which God said, I'm really glad it exists. I'm really, really glad God is for my prosperity because if God's for my prosperity, then you know. I get to have an awesome job, a wonderful house, uh, an amazing wife and three just, you know, glorious kids. So I'm really glad that God's for my prosperity. But let's remember the context he's, that, that Jeremiah wrote that when he was saying, seek the welfare of the city, it's like, seek the welfare of your oppressors. Yep. Seek the welfare of the, of the country that has been a terror to you for decades and now destroyed your city dragged you into exile, is probably committing horrific human rights abuses. And Je Jeremiah is writing a letter saying, stop listening to the false prophets. You're not coming back for 70 years. Now bless this evil city you've been sent to, right? Seek the welfare of this place. That'll move And I, I tell you, you know, I mean, well, Jeremiah, popular guy from beginning to end, I Definitely. tell you, I mean, he was just, they, they loved him. You got that small um, again, goes the well, yeah. <laughs> Well, that and I, I was saying that even before I think our podcast, Bob, when you brought up the point on um, uh, Andy Abernathy's podcast about the title of prophet, and yeah. you know we shouldn't just like, oh, I've I, you hear this today, like I have a prophetic calling, really. So you want to lay on your side for 140 days? All right, I love to see it. Absolutely. Um, right. And so, so what's motivating our politics, right? And because Jeremiah is saying the exact opposite of a manipulative politics, he's talking about a sacrificial politics. And, you know, one of my favorite verses has become uh, John 12, 24 through 25, where Jesus talking to the disciples says to them, you know, if the seed falls to the ground, it does nothing. But if it dies, yep. it gives, it bears uh, fruit and gives growth. And so, you know, Jeremiah is telling these people in Babylon, it's 70 years, which basically means you people are going to be dead. So now 
bear fruit in Babylon. Don't have a manipulative politics, have a sacrificial politics, serve your enemies, seek the welfare of the city. And that's just, you know, that's an idea that none of us want to hear, right? No, no one wants to be the sacrifice. We want to celebrate the sacrifice. We don't want to be the sacrifice. <laughs> but that that has to be the politics, right? That's that's the politics of Charleston AME. That's the politics of sacrifice. That's, you know, the person who I've just become obsessed with in reading a lot of his writings, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., which, you know, just shows how original I am. I'm reading Dr. King because I'm, I'm just so... I'm just really? so bold. I know, yeah. you know, you know, he's a hero of mine. <laughs> I really, I admire him. <laughs> if only we could be like him today. I tell you, uh, well kept. Secret. You know, if, if only, if only we could be like Dr. King. If we could protest like Dr. King, we all our politics would be fixed. But, but I mean, but actually, I said that sarcastically. But that's literally true. It's the problem is the people who are saying it don't believe it. They just want other people to believe it, right? Mm-hmm. The person who's saying act like Dr. King is not the one who's actually acting like Dr. King. Right. Because what Dr. King um, didn't make it to 40. Sure. Right. I mean, I've outlived Dr. I've outlived Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Uh, because he made his life sacrifice before he died. Yeah. Um, and mm. and if we live that sacrificial life as Christians, which includes a sacrificial politics, then we're going to bear the fruit that Jesus said we're going to bear. Um, and because, I mean, because if you actually even think about what the Israelites accomplished in Babylon, um, Jews had a thriving community in Babylon for centuries, for millennia, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they were obedient to what the prophet said and they did seek the blessing of the city and had a thriving community. Because God keeps his promises and he's true to his word. And if he says, seek the welfare of the city, and when you seek the welfare of the city, when you bless your conquerors, when you bless those who destroyed your homeland, then, like, verse 11 follows verse 7, right? When you seek the welfare of the city, then I will prosper you. And we can look today. I mean, it wasn't really until, sadly, the very... You know, as, as a reaction against the creation of the state of Israel, then we saw Arab populations turn against Jewish communities, and we really saw, saw those Jewish communities in, you know, you know Baghdad and, you know, uh, and Iraq become under more attack. But think about that. When Jeremiah said this, this is like, um, 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 this is where I wish Andy was here. And then like, Andy, what, what year are we talking about? Like some, 700, 500 BC, I don't know. <laughs> but like, think about that. Like, you have 700, 500 these communities lasted to the 20th century. That's two and a half millennia. God's a promise keeper, right? That's one of those things where you turn to and you just say, you want to believe the truth of the word. Jeremiah said, if you seek the welfare of your city, God will bless you. And we have two and a half millennia of God keeping his word. This conversation doesn't end with this episode. And so, as you may know, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Tesseract Podcast. And we hope that you continue to participate with us as we explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways it has been dismantled. Uh, Till next time, I'm Steve. That's been Bob. And join with Michael for these episodes. And uh, we'll see you next time.